Well, guys, welcome to The Grove. Uh, my name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here at The Grove, and I'm so glad that you are here with us this afternoon. Uh, again, it is a weird time for everyone, and for us as a young church that doesn't have a building. Again, we've gone from meeting in a school to meeting outside under a tent, now meeting here in the afternoon at 1 o'clock. Unconventional to say the least, but uh, nonetheless, here we are. Uh, again, learning the important lesson that we can sometimes tend to forget about what makes a church a church. It's not a building, it's not a certain time of the week, um, but it is a gathering of God's people coming together to hear his words preach and worship his name. So we can do that at 1 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, directly after Church of Southlake service, which ended at 1215. Um, and they have, again, so graciously allowed us to be able to meet here during this incredibly strange season. Uh, and so we are so grateful for them, their generosity, Pedro for running sound back there, I'm sure, this morning, and then also now as well with no in-between time. So if you walked in and we we're still doing sound check at 1257, uh, thus is the nature of church right now. So anyway, guys, thank you so much for being here and for showing grace and patience. Um, and again, learning the lesson that this isn't a production, it's not a performance. We're here to hear God's word, to sing God's word, to pray God's word, to remember God's word and promises to us. Um, and so we are now turning our attention just to that uh, in 2 Corinthians. So we are uh, an expository preaching church. It's one of the things that marks us as a church. Now what that means is the majority of time, we're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. We want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us. So we are uh, walking through a study through the book of 2 Corinthians right now, and we'll be at the end of 2 Corinthians 8, we'll be in verse 16, we'll go to chapter 9, verse 5. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. So we'll start in chapter 8, verse 16. Now remember, Paul um, helped start this church in Corinth a number of years ago, and his relationship was rocky, to say the least, with this church. This was the second letter that we have from Paul writing to this church, and it comes on the heels of reconciliation. Uh, there was this issue between Paul and the church. He had to write them a severe letter. He had a, a difficult and painful visit with them, but they have since reconciled, and Paul is now writing this letter on the other side of it. And we saw last week in chapters 8 and in chapter 9, Paul now transitions and asks them something very specific. In these two chapters, he's writing to them asking that they would collect an offering, a gift, so that Paul could come and take it and bring it to the church in Jerusalem who was in need. So Paul is writing to them, we saw last week, about why they are to give. And we'll move this week into seeing some of the administration and the things that Paul puts into place on how he's going to then take that gift and bring it to the church in Jerusalem. So in these two chapters, we spent last week, we'll look at this week, and again next week as we finish chapter 9, Paul gives us the most uh, direct and comprehensive teaching on money and on giving in the entire Bible. And so we are walking through it, asking the question, how does God view our money and how should we view our money? How should we think about giving in generosity? And we want to make sure we take our time and put a magnifying glass over the text because this has been so grossly mistaught and used to manipulate within the church in the name of God. 
And so we want to make sure we ask the question, not how should we think about money, or even asking the question how to be able to get more money, but asking the question, God, how do you think about money, and how should we think about giving and generosity in turn? And so as we saw last week, Paul began chapter 8 with giving us seven principles on giving. So giving isn't based on how much money you have, it's based on how much grace you have. Second, we saw that if you aren't generous when you don't have much, then you won't be generous when you have a lot. Third, we saw that, give, that we are to give our entire life to the Lord and then, secondarily, give some of our stuff to his mission. The priority and the importance of that. Next, we saw in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 8 that generosity is a demonstration. It's not a demonstration of wealth. It is a demonstration of love. Fifth principle we saw last week is that the greatest giver in history is God himself. This was what Garrett read just earlier in chapter 8, verse 9. That the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. So that through his poverty, we might become rich. God gave us his son. He is the greatest giver in history. Sixth, we saw that God doesn't need your money. God wants your heart. The sixth principle we saw in generosity. And last week, lastly, uh, in the seventh principle was that giving isn't just a one-way street. So Paul is writing to them, helping them try to properly view how to give particularly telling them to be able to give this gift to this church in Jerusalem. So now we come to the issue. Paul has tried to show them how to properly think about giving. He's calling them directly to give this gift to the church. So how is Paul going to handle it? How is Paul going to take this money that this church in Corinth has collected and take it to the church in Jerusalem? Right? Because money is something that's just fraught with temptation and opportunity to be able to sin. And also just for the opportunity to maybe just look poorly. Right? Paul isn't charging the church in Corinth anything. And Paul's opponents are using that against him. Saying, how's Paul making a living then? I bet, uh, think about it, church in Corinth. These are what the opponents are saying. Why don't you just think about it? Paul's not charging you anything, but he's asking for this large gift that he's going to take to Jerusalem. I bet he's just shaving some off the side for himself and you won't ever know it. And Paul is, knows that there are going to be things hurled at him. So Paul, in this discussion of money and giving, we're about to see, goes to considerable lengths to show the way that that money will then be given and transferred and administered to the church. And we will see two things uh, here this afternoon. We will see the, admi uh, the administering the gift and secondly, preparing the gift. Those are Paul's two concerns, showing how to administer the gift in chapter 8, verses 16 to 24, and secondly, preparing the gift in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. So let's read then together, and then we will dive in. Chapter 8, Paul writes this, Thanks be to God, who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus. For he welcomed our appeal, and being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. We've sent him with the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. And not only for that, but he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gracious gift that we are administering for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We are taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administering. Indeed, we are giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. We've also sent with them our brother. We've often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be diligent. 
and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker for you. As for our brothers, they are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show them proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. Now, concerning the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty, and so that you would be ready, just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. So you hear the links that Paul goes to laying out the plans of how he's going to receive the gift and transfer it and give it to the church in Jerusalem. Why does Paul do that and how does he do that? We see first in administering the gift, Paul lays out how it's going to happen. So you, you may have picked up and heard that Paul has this idea for the brothers three. Those are the way in which he's going to go and receive the gift. So it's not going to be Paul. It's going to be these three brothers, he calls them. So we see the first one is the genuine brother in verses 16 and 17. It's Titus. Paul is saying, God put this same concern for you into the heart of Titus that Titus welcomed our appeal and being very diligent, he went out to you by his own choice. So Titus was genuine and wanting to come to the church by himself, by his own choice, his own concern. He loved this church and he wanted to come to them. Paul's saying this is the first brother that's going to come and collect the gift. But it won't just be Titus because if Titus was handling this huge sum by himself, he might be tempted to do something. So there are others that are coming as well. So first there was the genuine brother in Titus, but second there was the famous brother, in verses 18 and 19, now we don't have a name for him, but Paul says we have sent with him the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry, the famous one, the one that everybody knows, the one everybody's retweeting, the guy has got a blue check mark next to his name and tons of books that has been written, the guy that everyone knows. You know him. I don't even have to say his name, but that brother, the brother that's the most famous, praised among all the churches, he's coming with Titus to be able to receive the gift as well. And so he's coming also, the one to be able to administer this gracious gift. And now we're going to skip verses 20 and 21, come right back to it, to get to the third brother, the diligent brother. Now you can imagine, if you're this third brother, the third one that's going with uh, Titus and this famous brother, as you're maybe hearing this letter, you're hearing the way Paul's writing about these guys, and you're like, oh, he's writing about Titus. The genuine, diligent one who went from his own concern and love for the church. And then you hear about him talking about the famous brother, the one who's praised among all the churches. And if you're this third guy, you're like, man, what's he going to say about me? He's sitting here calling this other guy the most famous brother in, the, in all the churches. Well, what's Paul going to say about me? And then you get to verse 22, and Paul writes, We have also sent with them our brother. We've often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be diligent. And now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. Now, what a tremendous uh, compliment to be called the one who's diligent, 
who's been tested and found diligent. But I can't help but think if I'm that guy, I'm like, man, he's, you call him the most famous guy in the world in all the churches, and I'm just the diligent one? I, I do good things? Come on, Paul, a little bit, maybe a little bit better, but whatever, what have you. Here are the three brothers that are sent, the genuine one, the famous one, the diligent one. Paul is writing his plans to be able to collect this gift and take it to Jerusalem, saying, hey, I'm not going to go and handle it. Three others. Here's the boundaries we're going to put in place to make sure that one another is accountable, to make sure there's complete transparency so that you know the way that your gift will be given completely to the church in Jerusalem and so that no one can hurl anything against us. Paul says why he's taking this precaution. This is why we go back then verses 20 and 21. Paul says this is why we're doing it. We are taking this precaution, the precaution of sending three brothers and not just himself, This precaution, why? So that, Paul gives us the reason why, so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administering. Paul knew the possibilities for slander around money. And he said, I'm just going to remove even the possibility of it. They can't say that I'm trying to take some money for myself because I'm going to send these three brothers. And also, these aren't three guys I've just picked on my own. But he goes to point out that these were men who were appointed by the churches, The churches said, hey, these are going to be our messengers. They were messengers of the churches. Verse uh, 18, we see that he was praised among all the churches, the famous brother. Not only that, he was appointed by the churches to accompany us. So it wasn't Paul picking these guys. These were the churches. So Paul's saying, I'm going to remove any opportunity for slander. This is the precaution we're putting in place to make sure that no one can criticize us. And indeed, verse 21, we're giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. You hear Paul's two concerns in making this precaution. He says we want to, one, make sure we're doing right before the Lord, and two, making sure we're doing what's right before people. Paul's saying, primarily, I want to make sure that I don't fall into sin. Paul's saying, I don't want to put myself in temptation's way. I'm going to step back and remove myself and make sure that we are doing what is right before the Lord. And secondarily, we want to make sure that no one can see it and criticize and cast any kind of slander, try to take the legs out from underneath this ministry and distract you from what God is calling you to do. Paul's Twin concerns are just that. That's why Paul goes to those links to take that precaution. Now, there's a ton of application here, uh, primarily for churches and how churches are to deal with money. And so this is one of the things that we see, and we want to make sure that we put things in place, both so that leaders here at this church are protected, so that I am protected, so I'm not stepping into any kind of sin or temptation, and also so that no one can hurl any stones at the church that is here. So part of, the, thing, part of the, the things that we put in place, some of the policies that we put in place, is that our elders of this church never see who gives what. There's no idea that we see who is giving what amount, whether or not it's in proportion to any kind of uh, income. We have no idea because we understand, as we saw in chapter 8, we'll see again this week and again next week, God isn't concerned with a specific amount but the posture of a heart. And we're not good judges of that. I'm not even a good judge of my own heart, much less someone else's. And so there's never an opportunity in which I have touched an offering plate unless I'm putting something into it. I don't want to be tempted to any chance to be able to to give any kind of prejudice or preference to people who might give more or less. 
but be able to just freely preach God's word and minister to God's people. So we want to make sure that we are doing what is right both in the sight of the Lord and also uh, in the sight of his people. That goes into policies we have on who counts money, making sure that we have both a bookkeeper and a treasurer who's an internal auditor at our church. We want to make sure we are putting precautions in place so that no one can criticize us and make sure that people don't fall into sin. So we're not just walking into temptation. So there's an application here for our church, but there's also application for your life. So, I mean, maybe you're a business owner. Maybe you oversee lots of money. There's important things to think about how we handle money and precautions we put into place. But friends, this application goes far beyond just money and how we deal with it. You hear the way Paul is saying, I want to make sure I put precautions in place and I don't just walk right into temptation. Paul wants to pull himself away from it and live right before the Lord. That is Paul's concern. And friends, just a quick aside from giving and from money, that principle reaches into every single facet of our life and how we deal with temptation and how we battle sin. Are we getting as close to the line as we can? Right, it's the question that's often asked with Sin, how close can we get before it becomes sin? Friends, if we're asking that question, we're asking the wrong question. Paul isn't trying to see how close he can get. Paul's saying, how far away can I be? Paul's wanting to distance himself. We, we see in Proverbs 6, verse 27 and 28, the author puts it this way, can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? Right, here's the question that the author of Proverbs there is asking. Can you get that close to sin and it not burn you? Can you expect to just walk on burning coals and not scorch your feet? And the closer we get to temptation, the more that we put ourselves in sin's way, friends, then we are going to be overtaken by it. We don't need to be asking how close we can get to it, but how far away do we need to be? Don't flirt with sin or I promise you that it will flirt back. You may, be, you may be sitting there this morning and going, well, I'm, I'm not really flirting with it. I'm not really getting close to it. Goodness, I would barely even say I'm just cracking the door open maybe, just giving a slight nudge. But friends, do you realize what's behind that door that you're just leaving barely cracked? Genesis 4, 7 puts it this way, that sin is crouching at the door. And you know what its desire is? Its desire is for you. Sin's desire is just crouching at the door, waiting to overtake you in a moment of weakness, in a moment of temptation, and step in to utterly destroy your life and lead to death, James writes. That's the desire for sin. And so how do we deal with it? Well, we run away from it. Like Paul here, Paul says, I'm not even given an opportunity. I'm not going to handle it. I'm not going to touch it. So for us in our life, how will we think through moments of temptation in our lives? Do we say, well, just open the door just to crack? Friends, if we do that, I promise Satan will shove it wide open. If you give the devil an inch, he will become your ruler. Put up whatever barrier you need to in order to keep yourself from sin and take whatever measures you need to to make sure that that door remains shut. Because if you struggle with gambling, don't walk into a casino or download that game. If you wrestle with alcoholism, don't tell yourself you can just stop after two. If you're battling with lust, get rid of your smartphone. 
a dumb phone can still call and text. If video games are eroding your marriage and family, then give the console away. And if you're thinking right now you can't do those things, that's just impossible. There's no way I can do that. When you haven't seen the end of what sin has for your life, what its desire truly is, and what the enemy wants. Because he wants to destroy your life. And I promise you, he's fine with however long it takes. He doesn't need to destroy your life today. He just wants to make sure you take one more step in that direction. And I worry that many of us trust our ability to be able to withstand the pull of that temptation. Friends, there are countless numbers of people who have ruined their lives by trusting in their own integrity too much. If Paul distanced himself from that temptation, I know that I do. Friends, and I know that you do as well. Don't be like those that have ruined their lives. Be like Paul and take whatever precaution you need to to be able to keep yourself from sin. So that's the first thing we see. Paul writes here the administration of the gift, administering the gift. We see the precautions he puts in place to distance himself from even the possibility of sin or how people might criticize him. So Paul shifts now in chapter 9 to not just administering the gift but telling the Corinthians on how to prepare the gift and preparing the gift in verses 1 through 5. So Paul begins with showing how much he has boasted in this church. Verse 1, he says, concerning the ministry to the saints or to this gift of offering to the church in Jerusalem, it's unnecessary for me to write to you. For I know your eagerness and I boast about you to the Macedonians. So Paul's saying, guys, listen, I don't need to write to you because I know that you're eager to be able to give. I was there when you started this collection years ago, and I know that that eagerness still remains in you, so much so that I've been boasting about you to these other churches. I've been saying, man, this, this church in Corinth, they are eager to be able to give. They began this collection to the saints in Jerusalem. So Paul is boasting about them here in verses 1 and 2 and how their zeal has stirred up most of the other churches. Paul is using their example of faithfulness and eagerness to be able to give as an example to other churches, and that has stirred them up. So if that's the case, then again, why is he sending these brothers? Well, Paul tells them in verse 3, he said, here's why I'm sending the brothers. Yes, to be able to administer the gifts and be able to uh, set boundaries and put things up in place. But also, I'm sending the brothers to you so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty. There's reason number one. Paul's saying, you want to know why I'm sending the brothers to you rather than just having you bring it here? He says, I want to make sure that my boasting about you doesn't prove empty. And then second reason he gives in that same verse so that you would be ready, just as I said. So Paul says, hey, giving you a heads up, I'm sending three brothers to you. They're going to collect the gift and take it to Jerusalem. And I'm doing that. I'm letting you know that I'm doing that rather than having just show up. I'm letting you know in advance for two reasons. One, so that I boasting about you wouldn't be made empty, wouldn't be in vain, and so that you would be ready. So what does that mean? What is Paul trying to say? Well, he explains he said, here's why. Otherwise, if I didn't let you know, and if any Macedonians come with me, so if Paul's saying, hey, if this church, these churches I'm with right now in Macedonia that I've been bragging about you to, if there's some Macedonians that come with me and we show up in Corinth and we come to take this gift and bring it to Jerusalem and it's not ready, I'm going to look like an idiot because I've been bragging about your eagerness to be able to give and we show up and it's not here. 
But I'm not only going to be embarrassed, goodness, it's going to look bad on you guys. It's going to bring shame on you. And this is what he says in verse 4. If any of them come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. So first, I want to make sure my boasting isn't in vain and so that us or you are not embarrassed in this situation. It's going to be awkward if that happens. So that's the first reason why I'm letting you know the brothers are coming. And secondly, and more importantly, he wants to make sure that they are ready. He wants to give them the uh, heads up so that they can think, they can pray, they can think about God's grace, they can look at their finances, they can make the decision to say, okay, this is what we want to be able to give to God's mission and helping the saints that are in need in Jerusalem, and we can give it thankfully and joyfully. Rather than all of a sudden you're in your, imagine you didn't know that Paul and them were coming. You're in the church in Corinth. You wake up one day. It's a normal day. And all of a sudden, you hear a clamoring around the town. And someone from your church runs in. It's like, hey, Paul and Macedonians are here for money. You'd run real quick and see what loose change you have and throw it that way and give it to them. And there'd be a collection that was given. And which one of those scenarios do you think God is after? Which one of those scenarios did Paul and God inspiring Paul, want the church in Corinth to be able to enter into one in which they thoughtfully considered God's grace for them, looked at their finances to give generously, sacrificially, and joyfully, or one in which they went, oh, well, I've got to give because Paul and the Macedonians are here. He's been bragging about us, so we've got to give some money so that we don't look like idiots, so here's some money. Which one of those twos honors God the most? What's the first one? And this is what Paul is writing to them, saying, guys, I want to make sure that you know in advance so that you would be ready. Right? And then he finishes in verse 5 saying just that. He said, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift that you promised. Why? So that, here's the purpose, so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. Some of your translations may say an exaction, like a tax almost. The tax man comes and gives the money that you owe. Paul's saying, that's not the situation that I want. I want to make sure you knew in advance. I told you that the brothers were coming so that you could give as a gift, not of obligation, not because it was an extortion. The definition that I found online for extortion, exaction, is that it's the action of demanding and obtaining something from someone, especially a payment or a service. So it is a demand, one in which Paul's saying, I don't want this to happen. I walk into town and say, hey, you guys have to give to God's mission to help the saints in Jerusalem. Paul's saying, that's the scenario I don't want to happen. Why? Because giving isn't just about getting money to help poor, needy God who can't do it on his own. So everybody pay up so he can help the big man upstairs. Paul's saying that's not the purpose of giving. He's saying giving is an act of worship in response to God's generosity to us. And so when we give, he's saying, I want to make sure you know so that when you do it, it's not an extortion. It's not an exaction. It's not something which you feel like you have to do, but it's given as a gift. It's given as a response. It's given as an act of thankful worship to a generous God. Paul's saying, that's why I'm letting you know they're coming so that you can get ready and engage in this worship in the mission of God. Paul's saying it's not like taxes. 
But I don't know about you, but when I look at my income tax every year, I'm not doing it joyfully. I don't look and go, man, I am glad that I'm giving this money to the government. Maybe I need to be more patriotic. I don't know, but that's never a joyful experience for me. The government comes and demands, here is what you owe. Paul is saying that is not the way giving works in the church. God isn't just demanding a certain percentage of your income, and we just have to oblige and do it because God wouldn't know what to do without it. Paul's saying it is a gift. It's not an extortion. It's not an exaction. Your giving to this church is not spiritual income tax. God isn't demanding an exact amount or guilting you into giving, but instead wants you to be moved by grace and filled with his joy so that when you give, it's a gift and not an extortion. Cheerful worship and not begrudging compliance. Paul's saying, that's why I let you know the brothers are coming. And it helps us see how we are to think about giving. It's to be done cheerfully and joyfully. We're going to look even more at this next week as Paul shows us who it is that God loves. But as you hear that, maybe you hear it and go, boy, that sounds great, Caleb, but that is not my reality. It's hard for me to be generous. Maybe things feel financially so tight in your life that every dollar that you give is hard. It doesn't feel like a gift, and it certainly isn't done cheerfully. And so maybe you hear that, and you maybe feel stuck or asking the question, well, then how in the world can I get there? How do I get to a point where giving and being generous becomes something that's an act of worship? How can I get there? Well, I think in order to get there, there are three great principles that we have to understand in our life. There's probably more, but these are the three that have kind of been foundational for me, and I've seen kind of as overarching themes within Scripture. And any one of these, if we don't have in place, then friends, we, we won't have the foundation to be able to give as Christians, to think about our money as Christians, to think about generosity as Christians. Because the way Christians think about it is drastically different than the world. What is it that makes Christian generosity different from worldly generosity? I'd say the way to be able to move and get to a point of joyful generosity is by understanding these three things, having these three views. First, we must have a right view about our purpose. In order to be a joyful giver, we have to have a right view about our purpose. Asking the question, why are we here? What's your purpose in life? Why has God created you, breathed life into you, saved you, and now has you walking into a, a church on Sunday afternoon, continuing your job this week, being with your family, having a career, having dreams, having goals, having aspirations? Why are you doing all of it? What's your purpose? It's an incredibly profound question. And the Bible speaks directly to it. The danger and the pull, especially as we live in the West, especially as we live in America, the danger is for us to think that our purpose, that our lives are all about us. Our comfort, our dreams, our goals, our desires all revolve around the center of ourselves, which is our universe. We put ourselves in the very center of our lives. And everything, as long as our lives are about us, then we're never going to be generous. 
It's hard to get rid of things that we want to be more comfortable if our lives are about us. But what is our purpose? The Bible puts it this way in Isaiah 43, 7, that everyone who bears my name, God is talking here, everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. God says, you know why you exist? You want to know what your purpose is? You are created for my glory. Period. You want to know your purpose in life? You were created to glorify God. To shine a light on him. To talk about. To sing about. To live in such a way that people look at you and glorify God. In everything that you do. Right, the Westminster Catechism was a, was a catechism, a, a series of questions put together by a number of old, faithful, uh, biblical pastors. They got together and said, let's put together these questions that we could ask to families to help them teach their children. And question one of that catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? This very question, what is the purpose of our creation? What is the chief end of man? How do they answer it? To glorify God. To shine a light on him. Our life is not about ourselves. Our life is about him. Have you ever walked into an art gallery? You see a beautiful piece of art, and above it, there's like a little bitty light that's shining down on it. You may not have noticed it because the point isn't to notice the light. The light's just kind of out of the way. It's there to be able to give light to the painting. If you ever walk into an art gallery, and you see all the paintings on the wall, but the light fixtures are completely ornate and gigantic and hang over the paintings that you can't see them, you'd walk in and go, what in the world was the guy who made these lights thinking? I didn't come in here to see a bunch of lights. I can't come in here to see a bunch of light fixtures. If I wanted to see a light fixture, I could walk into rooms to go, but I've come instead to be able to see paintings. Where are the paintings? The point of the light isn't to look at the light. The point of the light is to be able to shine light on the beauty of the piece of art. Friend, the point of your life is not to bring attention to yourself. The purpose of your light, of your life, is to be a light that shines on the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God. If God has saved you, he's placed you in the art gallery of his glory to be able to take your light and shine it like a city on the hill on the beauty of his goodness and his glory so that anyone that is around you doesn't look at you but looks at him so that everything we do in all the good things and in the bad things in the highest heights of our life our greatest achievements and in the worst suffering of our life everything and even in the most mundane things The ordinary things of life. Paul puts it this way in his first letter to the church in Corinth. Whether you eat or you drink, things you need to do every day that are incredibly ordinary, do it to the glory of God. Paul is saying that your whole life is meant to glorify him. Your purpose is to glorify him. Your life is not about you. Your life is about making much of him. And when that settles into our hearts, that begins to loosen our fingers some on our stuff. Because we say, oh, this life isn't about me. I'm not trying to take this for my own comfort. But my hope, my goal, my purpose is to make much of him. So let me take everything I have to be able to do just that. Friends, you cannot be joyfully generous unless you believe that your life is not about you. 
That's the first principle. Secondly, we must also not just have a right view about our purpose. We must have a right view about our joy. What do I mean by that? Well, there is, I think, kind of an understated understanding that Christianity is like really boring, that we're not happy people. We just like all the fun in the world. We just ignore, and we're supposed to just ignore all of it and follow Jesus. If you read the New Testament, the New Testament teaching is drastically different from that. In fact, Jesus says, I've come that you might have joy and joy to the fullest. Jesus wants you to be happier than anybody else in this world. But where does that happiness come from? Where does that joy come from? The temptation is we can think that our joy comes from the stuff that we have or the circumstances in our life. My happiness is connected to how much stuff I have, how my 401k is currently performing, or what my circumstances in life are about. But Jesus says, no, your joy to be fully found can't be found in anything in this world, but to be found in me. That God wants you to enjoy him. Because maybe you don't need to hear anything else today but that. God wants you to enjoy him. Again, the first question of the Westminster Catechism, I only read half of the answer. What is the chief end of man? They said it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Friends, that is our chief end, to be able to glorify him by enjoying him, by being satisfied in him, by being able to look and say, Jesus, my greatest treasure is found in you, not in my money, not in my house, not in my family, not in my job, not in anything in this world, but Jesus, you are my great treasure. So whenever we find the treasure in the field hidden, then we take it, we grab it, we go sell everything else we have Why? Not because we now hate our stuff, but because of how much we love the treasure. Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Set your heart on me. Enjoy me. Stop listening to the lies of the things of this world and come and find your joy in me. And when that happens, when we go, Jesus, you are my greatest treasure, then our fingers begin to loosen on our stuff because we go, you guys, everything that I have that's been telling me my joy was found in it has been lying. I kept listening. I kept trying. I kept believing If I just had a little bit more, then I'd be happy. But every time we got it, it always let us down. And so finally, I can stop believing the lie and find my joy in him as my great treasure. This is what Jesus is inviting us to. Find our joy in him. Glorify him by enjoying him forever. That when we enjoy him, we then will talk about him. We'll go and tell people, Jesus is better than anything in your life. Come and see for yourself. That's the beautiful evangelistic message in the Gospels. People went and had an encounter with Jesus, and they didn't then go and study apologetics and go and try to maneuver their way back into the towns. No, what was the evangelistic message in the Gospels? People had an encounter with Jesus, found their soul satisfied in him, and then went back and said, hey, come and see for yourself. Why don't you come and taste it? Everything that this world has been throwing at you, it's all been a lie. Come and see the one whom your souls were created to love. Come and see for yourself. That's the message of evangelism in the Gospels. And friends, you cannot be joyfully generous unless you believe and taste for yourself that there is more joy to be found in God 
than in anything else in this world. We must have a right view of our purpose. We must have a right view of our joy. And third and last, we must have a right view about our home. We must have a right view about our home. Now, I don't mean your permanent address right now. I don't mean whether or not you have a, a cookie-cutter home or a custom home. or I don't mean what neighborhood you live in or what your zip code is. I don't mean your home right now. I mean where our true home is as Christians. We must have a right view about our home. I think a lot of Christians believe in Jesus, love him, see him as the savior of our life and the one who's forgiven our sins, but then functionally, we still live like this place is our home. Like we're going to live here forever. We work hard to make ourselves as comfortable as we possibly can here and now. And that makes it hard to be able to give because we say, I don't want to be able to let go of the comfort here because this is where my home is. Leah and I are currently doing a couple just renovations in our house. We bought a rug the other day. We're painting um, picture frames. We're looking to take down a wall, open concept, hashtag Joanna Gaines. We're looking to make some changes in our home. We're renovating our house. It's where we live. That's fairly normal. But now if this weekend we went and stayed at a hotel and began to do the same things in that hotel room, some of you may go, okay, what in the world are you doing? Why are you taking on that wall? That's the next person's room. You may go to jail for that. You can't do that. Why are you bringing a rug in here? And we'd say that. Why? Because we go, you're just staying there for a night or two. It's not your home. Why are you, even, why are you, why are you making decisions and trying to make yourself as comfortable as possible in a place you're just going to spend a night or two? You're about to go home. Stop working so hard on a place you're just living for a couple days. Friends, we in America especially, it feels like, I think it's been all throughout Christianity, but especially it feels like in America, we forget the teaching of heaven, we forget the reality that that is our home, and we live so much like in this hotel room that is our life, that we're just passing through, and work so hard to make this as comfortable as we possibly can, putting as much effort into renovations in our lives because we feel like this is our home. But friends, we have to understand this place is not our home. The Bible talks about us being pilgrims and strangers in this life. Paul, just a couple chapters earlier in 2 Corinthians, says that we are in a tent right now, but we're headed towards our permanent dwelling, our permanent house. So we are in our tent right now. We are setting up in this hotel room as we head home. And whenever we begin to understand that, it begins to loosen our fingers on our stuff because we go, I'm not living here for long anyway. This place isn't my home. I'm just passing through. And can use then the gifts and resources that God has given me as a steward to be able to glorify him, find my joy ultimately in him, and know that this place isn't my home. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a Welsh preacher, that, um, one of my favorite preachers in the early to mid-1900s. And he put it this way. It's a longer quote, but I can't say it any better than him, so I'll go ahead and just read through it. When talking about this, he said this. He says, we must always start with that great principle, the principle of having ourselves, seeing ourselves as pilgrims, as children of God going to our Father. Everything falls into its true perspective after that. We shall immediately take a right view of our gifts and our possessions. We begin to think of ourselves only as stewards who must give an account of them. We are not the permanent holder of these things. 
It matters not whether it is money or intellect or ourselves or our personalities or whatever gift we may have. The worldly man thinks that he himself owns them all. But the Christian starts by saying, I am not the possessor of these things. I merely have them on lease and they do not really belong to me. I cannot take my wealth with me. I cannot take my gifts with me. I am but a custodian of these things. And at once, the great question that arises is, how can I use these things then to the glory of God? And keep my glasses on. It is God that I have to meet. It is God that I have to face. It is he who is my eternal judge and my father. It is to him that I shall have to render up an account of my stewardship of all things with which he has blessed me. Therefore, the Christian says to himself, I must be careful how I use these things and of my attitudes towards them. I must do all things he tells me to do in order that I may please him. There then is the way in which we lay up treasures in heaven. It all comes back to the question of how I view myself and how I view my life in this world. Do I tell myself every day that I live, that this is but another milestone I'm passing, never to go back, never to come again? I'm pitching my moving tent a day's march nearer home. That's the great principle of which I must constantly remind myself, that I'm a child of the Father, placed here for His purpose, not for myself. I did not choose to come. I would not have brought myself here. There is purpose in it all. God has given me this great privilege of living in this world, and he has given me and gifted me with all of these gifts. I have to realize that although in one sense all things are mine, ultimately they are God's. Therefore, regarding myself as one who has this great privilege of being a caretaker for God, a custodian, and a steward, I do not cling to these things. They do not become the center of my life and existence. I do not live for them or dwell upon them constantly in my life. They do not absorb my mind. On the contrary, I hold them loosely. I am in a state of blessed detachment from them. I am not governed by them. Rather, do I govern them. And as I do this, I am steadily securing and safely laying up for myself treasures in heaven. Friends, do we see ourselves as pilgrims heading home? Stewards of everything that God has given us, knowing that this place is not our ultimate home. Do you find yourself in a state of blessed detachment from the stuff in your life? Or do you find that they have a peculiar hold on your heart, your affection, your thoughts, and your dreams? Friends, we begin to loosen that, we have to have a right view of our home. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And not only encourages them to prepare a gift for the church in Jerusalem, but also takes precaution about how it will be administered. Paul is trying to drill home how Christians should view their money and in giving to the church. He wants to make sure they don't see it wrongly. He wants to make sure they understand it as worship. He wants to make sure they see the care that he put in place to keep men from falling into sin, but also that they would give as a gift and not as extortion. A gift and not an obligation. Worship and not exaction. May God help us realize that our greatest treasure is in Jesus. That our ultimate purpose is his glory. That our truest home is still ahead. And may all of that lead us to be a people 
who are marked by his grace, filled with his joy, and driven to be joyfully generous. Let's pray. God, you are so, so full of generosity. God, you gave yourself, sent your son to die in our place so that we would have life, so that we could find joy, so that we could have hope in the midst of any circumstance in this life, knowing that we are headed home to live and be with you face to face. God, would that drill down into our hearts and it would begin to shape the way that we see our money and that we see giving. God, that it would be done as an act of worship. God, a response to your generosity to us. God, that we would see what you've done for us. That we'd be filled with your joy. That we'd be marked by wanting to glorify you and that we would see and understand our true home that still lies ahead. And God, that we would find that you are our greatest treasure. God, may that be true of us. Help our heads not just to hear it and believe it, but God, but help our hearts to trust it and to hold on to it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.